And where did they get that idea from? They got it from the Soviet Union. Hello, clever listener. Welcome to the very first episode of The Commute, a podcast for South Africans at home and across the world who are interested in some of the big ideas of the moment and what they might mean for South Africa. This podcast is short and nutritious, and it's a great way to keep your ears company during your commute. And if your commute is longer than an episode, well, listen to several in a row, obviously. Designed to provide a high-value explainer from experts, the commute gives you, the smart South African, the big ideas in small blacks. I'm your host, Jessica Van Oxford. We find ourselves, comrades, at a critical time in the history of our country, in the life of the African National Congress, and in the course of the National Democratic Revolution. The African National Congress, and indeed, the continuation of the National Democratic Revolution. The National Democratic Revolution. It's in a process of transformation through the National Democratic Revolution. The National Democratic Revolution. So Zuma is gone and the opaque and profligate nuclear deal is dead. That means a whole lot less Russia in our lives as South Africa, right? But I was reminded watching the final speeches at the ANC's leadership conference at NASREC in December 2017, quite how prominently the idea of the National Democratic Revolution, or NDR, features in so many of the ANC's internal policy documents and speeches. And as you just heard, it was even mentioned in Cyril Ramaphosa's early speeches on becoming president. There can be no doubt that there was an enduring and special relationship between the USSR and the ANC under apartheid. But how exactly did all those Soviet ideas get quite so embedded in the ANC's thinking? When did it all start? Fortunately, South Africa has its very own Russia expert who knows pretty much everything there is to know on the subject, or at least until the Kremlin unseals its archives on the apartheid years and ANC support. She even wrote a damn good book about it recently. Her name is Professor Irina Filatova, and I sat down with her in Cape Town recently to talk about South Africa and Russia. I've split the interview into two parts. The first episode concentrates on the dark old days, the USSR and South Africa under apartheid. So that's from the 1950s to the transition in 1990. Officially, Russia had terrible relations with the National Party government, but unofficially it was funding and supporting the ANC. So who made first contact? What did the support look like? And is it true that 95% of ANC members abroad went through Soviet training? How did Soviet ideas influence the ANC? The second part of the interview is in episode 2, and that looks at South Africa's relationship with Russia after 1994, and Russia today. Who's Vladimir Putin? What does he want? What does he want from South Africa? Will he ever stop posing shirtless in front of bears in midwinter? Before we get to the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Professor Filatova. She's a professor at Russia's National Research University's Higher School of Economics and also Professor Emeritus of the University of KwaZulu-Natal. She specializes in African and Russian history. In the early 1990s, which if you think about it was a pretty critical time in both South Africa and Russia's history, she was the head of the African Studies Department at Moscow State University and then for 10 years head of the Department of History at the University of Durban-Westville. 
She's written a huge amount on the history of relations between South Africa and Russia. In 2014, her book, The Hidden Thread, Russia and South Africa in the Soviet Era, which is co-authored with Apollon Davidson, was awarded the Rechmelun Prize for Best Book of the Year in the Nonfiction category by Media24. I would really encourage you to get hold of a copy if you can. It's a riveting read. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Irina Filatova, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I love the title of your book, which is The Hidden Thread, uh, perhaps in recognition of the fact that the history of South Africa's and South Africans' relationship with the USSR, particularly in the final decades of apartheid, remains it's largely quite shrouded. The history is not written about much, with you and a handful of writers being the obvious exception, and is discussed in the public domain even less, except when there's something huge like the nuclear deal, which sort of makes it impossible to ignore. But a thread does very much exist. So in a country totally obsessed with the recent past, why do you think we don't talk more about our shared history with Russia? Well, there are several um, answers to this. First of all, very few people know about it, or at least know the details about it. And when you don't know anything, it is very difficult to uh, try to find out more because you don't know where to start. That's one reason. The other reason is that this history is not always pleasant for those who should be mostly interested in, uh, uh, well, showing it to the public, uh, such as the Communist Party or the ANC, for example. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, it is very difficult for the Communist Party to uh, recognize the fact uh, that the uh, uh, slogan of National Democratic Revolution, for example, was offered uh, to the leaders of the Communist Party as part of their uh, program in 1962, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, was uh, transferred uh, almost word, word for word uh, into the 1969 Morogoro Conference Program uh, uh, Strategy and Tactics of the ANC. Uh, so uh, such things are not very pleasurable to, to uh, sort of recognize and say, yes, we have got a lot of uh, theoretical and practical assistance uh, from the USSR. Some of it is recognized, and we can discuss that, but some of it isn't. So let's go back to the beginning, uh, or the beginning of perhaps this modern relationship between South Africa and, uh, and the USSR. We know that at some time in 1953, three South Africans packed their bags to travel to the USSR, and that those three men were Walter Sisulu, Paul Joseph, and Duma Nokwe. And this visit marked the beginning of a decades-long relationship between what was to become the ANC structures and the USSR. What was the Soviet's interests in supporting the ANC? Uh, there are several issues here, Jessica. First of all, we should remember that uh, uh, until 1956, uh, the Soviet Union and South Africa had uh, official diplomatic relations and uh, the Soviet Consulate General did exist in South Africa. Uh, until 1956, such visits could happen officially, mm -hmm. uh, just apply for the visa and go. And uh, so many communists did. Uh, the uh, These three people were certainly communists. They went 
sometime in 1953, they went after the World Youth Festival in Bucharest, which took place in August. So they proceeded to the Soviet Union after that. And that visit was not very special. What what was special about it uh, was that they wrote about it and the booklet was published of which uh, the uh, impressions of Russia uh, were published. So that was interesting. That is what existed. But after the consulate relationships were uh, finished, cut in 1956 by the National Party government, there was nothing. Uh, the visit stopped. Mm. Uh, there were no relations whatsoever. Uh, so the new era started uh, uh, with the underground Communist Party. It was revived in 1953. Direct relations with the ANC, between the ANC and the Soviet Communist Party were established only in 1963, when and the ANC was unique in that time because it was considered a national liberation movement and national, very few national liberation movements had direct ties with the Communist Party at the Central Committee level. Uh, so uh, that was uh, unique. And that is what started uh, the relations. And they were developing uh, at a really very fast-growing pace with the beginning of the armed struggle. Okay. So we have this initial contact that's being established in the 50s in the new era. That sort of solidifies and gains traction uh, in the 1960s. But all of this is happening against the backdrop of, of really dreadful relationships between the National Party uh, government of South Africa. And they were nothing short of hysterical about the threat of communism at the time. You know, die Roy Gefahr. You share a fantastic piece of anti-communist propaganda um, in your book by the Reverend Henry Pike, who wrote a 600-page tome on communism in South Africa. So for our listeners, I want to share the quote. P Pike wrote... I have not written about South African communism from an objective point of view. To discuss the good and objectivity of the communist system is tantamount to writing about the benefits of rape or premeditated murder. Genuine positive qualities do not exist in such a hellish anti-God philosophy. Like terminal cancer or confirmed gangrene, it will finally bring sh sure death or serious loss. <laughs> the quote sort of captures the tone of the time with regards to communism. I mean, could you comment on the apartheid states and the USSR's formal relations? Well, first of all, let's deal with Pike. <laughs> uh, I must say that uh, I'm not the admirer of communism and uh, I'm not the admirer of particularly uh, Soviet uh, communism, which resulted in millions of deaths of its own citizens. But... Of course, if you are a historian and Pike uh, tried to write a history book, if you start with the premise that you are not writing uh, an, an objective for trying to be uh, a balance to your objective view, then you are not a historian. Uh, so Pike has discredited himself <laughs> completely with uh, such a quote. 
uh, although he had, uh, he was obviously connected with uh, South African security services, and he had access to some of their materials, to just such propaganda items. Uh, but uh, uh, what he published, he couldn't get in any other mm. possible way. The relations I have mentioned that the official relations were cut in 1956, yes. uh, and they were deteriorating. Uh, steadily uh, from the time when the National Party came to uh, power in 1948. Mm. Uh, so uh, finally the Soviet consulates were closed, so no official relations. On the other hand, throughout the apartheid era and throughout the Soviet era, uh, this secret thread continued uh, because uh, uh, the uh, Soviet Union was interested in a cartel with the beers, uh, which had the monopoly on uh, diamond selling. So uh, the Soviets wanted uh, uh, their share of that cartel, and uh, uh, that's what was happening. Uh, the ANC objected against that, and uh, the best that the Soviet Union could do, and did, it tried to sort of trim the, uh, uh, the, 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 the threads, uh, meaning that they have opened uh, uh, a company in England, uh, which was a British company, and purportedly uh, the British company was dealing with the peers, and the Soviet Union had nothing to do with that. Uh, but uh, so sort of an arm's length relationship yeah, to keep the ANC yeah, yeah. happy that they weren't trading with the apartheid yeah, state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it was bad for the propaganda purposes because <laughs> they were fighting against apartheid. So they did get. Uh, the money from the beers for selling their diamonds, the Russians, and that connection existed through all, throughout. Uh, and there were attempts actually to meet and try to create something like that uh, about gold and platinum, which never ended in anything, it never materialized. Uh, but the irony of that is that the money that the Soviet Union got was quite a significant part of its uh, uh, GDP and uh, it was actually used to arm and train National Liberations Movement of which movements of which the ANC was one. So uh, there you go, you just trade with uh, uh, a passed state or a private company and then you get the money and then you give it to uh, a liberation organization to fight that government. So uh, that was... Uh, the irony is thick. Yeah, it is, it is, it is. So that is one part of the relations. Uh, but uh, the propaganda machine was working both sides. It was working both sides because the Soviet Union, it's obvious that the apartheid state was using uh, the Rui Hefar uh, for consolidating for propaganda purposes inside the country for consolidating the Africana uh, generally speaking white opinion around its policy uh, and 
uh, as for abroad, it tried to present uh, itself to the foreign governments, British and American governments, first of all, uh, as the fortress uh, against uh, the communist danger. It's the, sort of the uh, bulwark against uh, the communist, uh, advancing communism. Uh, but of course, the Soviets also used apartheid as a propaganda tool uh, because it was the ugly side of capitalism. And both in the United Nations and generally speaking uh, on the international arena, uh, the Soviet Union did everything to discredit uh, apartheid state and uh, to uh, support people who fought against it, which was a noble cause. Uh, but uh, uh, the propaganda element was also absolutely obvious and evident. Uh, it would be much more difficult for Soviet anti-capitalist propaganda, both inside and outside the country, if uh, such uh, rogue states as uh, the apartheid South Africa did not exist. And it was the initiative of the Soviet Union uh, that uh, uh, the uh, apartheid was finally proclaimed as a uh, crime against humanity. It was on the initiative at, at the of the United Yes, yeah. uh, yes. That's the relationship between the two states. Okay. That's an interesting distinction between um, ideologically condemning the, the ugly face of capitalism that was apartheid while trading diamonds <laughs> through your yeah. British established company. We know, you know, your, the average listener will know that the USSR provided direct assistance to the ANC for, for decades. Um, but what, what form did this training, uh, did this assistance generally take? Was it mainly training and education? Was it financial? Was it both? Uh, it was everything. Uh, the ANC, as we know it, would not have survived uh, as, uh, uh, as an organization uh, and a strong organization in exile. After it was banned in 1960, it would not have survived, particularly at the beginning, without Soviet assistance. Uh, the Soviets gave financial aid, that is absolutely true, particularly with the beginning of uh, the armed struggle. Of course, they gave, gave uh, the arms uh, and uh, training, military training, uh, and, of course, uh, there were South African students who uh, studied in the USSR. I can't give you the numbers, uh, but uh, uh, it was every possible assistance that uh, the ANC and the Communist Party could get. They were, by the way, funded separately. Uh, I mean, by uh, judging by the archive materials, uh, the ANC got the lion's share of uh, the financial assistance because uh, the armed struggle was fought in the name of the ANC. It was the Umkonto who was the uh, ANC's military wing. Uh, but the Communist Party would also not have survived, particularly at the beginning. I mean, throughout the 60s and uh, early 70s and until 1976, because after that things started to change and other countries started to give some financial assistance or humanitarian assistance, uh, the uh, United Nations assistance was tiny, uh, so that was uh, uh, really 
not not a very important factor. But of course, with all that assistance, with all that assistance, what you get is some ideological influence. Vladimir Shubin, who was uh, an official uh, of the Central Committee uh, of the Soviet Communist Party, who dealt with uh, South African, South African Communist Party and the ANC, uh, found uh, out from the ANC members uh, that 95% of all ANC members abroad have gone through military training of one sort or another. 95% Nine, of ANC operatives abroad. Abroad, not operatives. The ANC was an exi- ANC. in exile. Right. So uh, that is the figure he quotes in his book. Uh, 95% of all ANC cadres, cadres. abroad, all of them, uh, had gone through some sort of military training. Now, some of it was absolutely primitive. It's not just that all of them marched through the fields and so on. That was especially for the MK. But one of the most basic forms of military training was the uh, military combat work. Uh, That is a course which gives you some sort of an idea of how to behave uh, in different circumstances when you are underground. It is a cause which teaches you to be an underground fighter or politician or whoever in the underground circumstances in the country where when you where you are banned. Now um, the MCW, that's military combat work, uh, it was um, taught by the Soviets but some bits were added by uh, the uh, South African MK cadres. Uh, now, what is interesting is that at the beginning it didn't exist as a uh, standardized uh, text. What happened was that military cadres came to the Soviet Union to study and uh, they got this course and they had notes. Uh, now, uh, they were not allowed to take these notes out, but they did. Uh, and gradually they started to circulate among uh, the uh, cadres abroad and uh, uh, finally uh, the military command decided to standardize this text and uh, never it decided not to publish it in order not to compromise the Soviet comrades uh, that they are teaching all these underground uh, methods and uh, ideology because there's a lot of ideology there, I'll come to that. Uh, but gradually it became clear that the demand for uh, this brochure, which finally was a brochure, was such that they have decided to publish it. So it was published, of course, abroad. The South Africans published it, or the South Soviet Africans, South, South Africans published yeah. it. But they did say in the preface that it was based on the notes first and then that they standardized this text and uh, added a bit of their own text. But what is it, what what they were taught actually? Uh, apart from the methods uh, uh, and advice on how to behave underground, it was a very highly ideological document. It was teaching about the National Democratic Revolution. It was uh, teaching how to organize 
Genesis for the uprising. Uh, it was teaching about Lenin. It was teaching about socialism. So basically, it was a, an all-purpose cause through which perhaps 95% of the ANC cadres uh, uh, went, uh, which they had, and uh, that is what is... Uh, stuck in the in their heads uh, it was the uh, pamphlet brochure or whatever about people's war about people's uh, uh, you know people's war the expression that's uh, the 1980s uprising in the uh, in the townships now uh, then lenin's principle of party work all went into that brochure it was a kind of a handbook of Soviet ideology, Soviet methods of the underground work, and so on. And it was obviously uh, very influential. Uh, so, uh, basically, uh, after 1976, uh, when many young people left South Africa in order to join, um, join, join the armed struggle, and the uh, camps, ANC camps, appeared in Angola. Mm. Of course, the Soviet Union was supplying uh, these uh, ANC camps with whatever, whatever was necessary to supply them with uh, arms, but not only arms, ammunition, of course, but also all sorts of uh, ordinary equipment which mm. you need in the camp. Mm. So you just gave that astonishing figure of 95% of ANC cadres went through this chaining would have had exposure to this ideology. It's not me. It's <laughs> Shubin. Vladimir Shubin, yeah. uh, listeners. Vladimir Shubin is the name. I have his book in front of me. We assume that this astonishing figure included Jacob Zuma and, and other senior officials of the ANC today. They too would have would have had exposure well, to training. Uh, well, uh, I have given you uh, just the sort of most basic Yes, exposure, yeah, but there were many levels of such exposure. For example, there was a Lenin school, the so-called Lenin school or Institute of uh, Social Sciences uh, in the USSR, which taught foreign communists. Uh, and uh, uh, that was a very deep ideological cause, which, for example, Tabom Beki went through, or Aziz Pahad, and several other leaders. Uh, uh, Zuma went through a military cause. I'm not sure that he went to Lenin school, um, but I, I may be wrong. I don't. I simply don't remember at this point. But of course, Zuma went to the Soviet Union several times, and he had uh, a pretty uh, deep, uh, was deeply influenced by uh, the Soviet ideology. I think all these people were, because you have to think how they felt at that time. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union was their best friend. And uh, it helped them. It helped them to survive. Uh, it helped them to flourish on the international arena. Uh, it helped their propaganda, it helped their travel, uh, it bought tickets for its leaders to go to the conferences, uh, it received uh, uh, MK cadres and the party leaders for health and treatment purposes and uh, treated them in the Soviet hospitals, best Soviet hospitals. Uh, so the Soviet Union was a friend. And of course, they saw the best side of the Soviet life. And they thought that 
this is what they wanted. Mm. This is what uh, they would want for South Africa. And that mentality is still there. The older generation of the ANC is uh, uh, very much influenced. I mean, those who were abroad, those who were in exile, were very much influenced by that Soviet ideal uh, which was for them in full display. So the, the 1960s and 70s and 80s as a golden era of exchange and sort of mutual influence and absorbing all these ideas. Yeah. And yet the fall of the USSR, the fall of apartheid, actually happened quite close together historically, the late 1980s and the early 1990s. Uh, and they meant that both countries went through this extraordinary but actually relatively peaceful change, but the societies changed almost unrecognizably in a very short period. But if we fast forward to today, it sounds like there are a number of sort of hangovers uh, that exist from, from that era of Soviet ideology, uh, which are in fact still alive and well and living today in Latuli House. Uh, could you tell us about some of the ideas that the ANC still holds to today? Uh, look, first of all about this uh, almost simultaneously. This is certainly not by chance that it happened almost simultaneously uh, because the changes in the USSR uh, signified uh, and signaled to the ANC uh, leadership that it would not get any more assistance from the Soviet Union. That was absolutely obvious already in 1990 and 1991 uh, when the ANC delegation still came to uh, uh, to the Soviet Union and asked for assistance and they were still getting it to the very end but it was quite obvious at that time that that power is collapsing, mm. that the power of the party is collapsing, first of all, and second, uh, they were getting less and less, and uh, uh, the peaceful uh, settlement in Namibia, of the Namibian-Angolan conflict, showed them that this is where it is going, uh, and they were pushed towards negotiated settlement in South Africa. They knew perfectly well that what was happening was that they have to settle for something. Uh, so the two parties, the uh, uh, leadership, some of the leadership, not all of the leadership, but some of the leadership of the uh, uh, apartheid state, uh, and mostly it was centered, as far as I uh, can judge from uh, uh, reading Alistair Sparks, for example, mostly concentrated around the security uh, services here. They uh, started to negotiate with the Russians, also with the security services. This was, a, again, an irony of uh, the situation because they found one another, uh, the KGB and uh, the uh, NIS at that stage. Uh, so Neil Barnett was uh, a big deal in the last days of the Soviet Union. He visited uh, the Soviet Union in the last months of it, its existence. So they had this relationship. And I don't know how much the ANC knew about it, but uh, they did know that uh, their ties with uh, the USSR are coming to an end. So they had to negotiate. So when the uh, likes of Neil Barnett 
started these negotiations with the uh, ANC leadership at different levels. Uh, ANC in Lusaka, Mandela, all of it went simultaneously. Uh, that was because the ANC knew that the Soviet Union will not help them anymore, and B, uh, because the apartheid regime, uh, which just put itself in the corner before with this uh, uh, total onslaught and so on, knew uh, that there won't be any total onslaught because they knew perfectly well what was going on in the USSR. So that situation brought the Afrikaners who were in a corner and the ANC who were in a different way in a corner they brought it brought them together and allowed this uh, peaceful settlement so the collapse of the ussr was a very important factor uh, in what happened here of course it was not the only factor and of course there were many 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 other factors but certainly that was one of the very important ones but uh back to your uh, question about the ideas. Mm. Ideological legacy is a very important Soviet ideological legacy. The whole idea of the National Democratic Revolution, uh, it started, uh, uh, it was started by Lenin actually, uh, when uh, they discussed the bourgeois democratic, what this communist attitude to bourgeois democratic revolutions and how, for example, if it's a colony and it's a liberation struggle uh, against oppressors, uh, how do you react to that? And uh, finally, a formulation was worked out that they are not really bourgeois democratic revolutions, they are national democratic revolutions. So it was started by Lenin. Uh, it was then sort of forgotten. But with the upsurge of liberation movement in the late 1950s, early 1960s, that formulation has uh, re emerged. Uh, the sense of the national democratic, the meaning of the national democratic revolution is that if uh, the national democratic revolution or uh, the revolution against colonialism or against the apartheid regime or whatever is um, led not just by peasants but by the proletariat and if there is a communist party which can show the way uh, you can develop that liberation revolution into a socialist revolution, either as two stages or as a gradual process, uh, wh whichever way. But the meaning of the National Democratic Revolution is the route to socialism through the liberation revolution and perhaps without a socialist revolution. So when we speak about the second stage, mm. this is or second more radical stage or whatever. This radio, is what we socio-economic Yeah, that's what we are talking about. Mm. This is how this idea of the national democratic revolution uh, is conceptualized by the leaders of the ANC. And where did they get that idea from? They got it from the Soviet Union because uh, the um, party delegation came to the Soviet Union uh, in 1962 before 
the party held uh, its uh, Congress in 19, uh, 1962, abroad, of course, uh, because it was in exile at that time, or maybe uh, the Congress itself had took place in uh, the Soviet Union. I, I don't remember at that stage. But what I do remember is that uh, they had a discussion uh, with uh, uh, the uh, uh, people in the Central Committee, first of all, should they announce the existence of the party to the uh, South African masses? The idea was that uh, maybe later, but now you are underground, so remain underground. But uh, what program, what are we fighting for? Uh, and uh, so the answer was, look, in 1960, there was a meeting of communist and workers' parties in Moscow. There were 82 of them. Uh, and uh, it passed a resolution. One part of it was exactly National Democratic Revolution, so that you can uh, fight for liberation and simultaneously from that you can develop to socialism. So, so, so they advised to take this uh, to take this uh, idea and put it into the program of the Communist Party. Now, in 1969, there was another such meeting, uh, such meeting uh, in the uh, uh, of the Communist and Workers' Parties, and this formulation was finally sort of adopted. One of the authors, the Central Committee, had a group of advisors which worked on these theoretical issues. Uh, and uh, the person uh, who, uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, was head of that uh, group of advisors, he was deputy head uh, of the International Department of the Central Committee. Uh, he wrote in his book, uh, that uh, this idea of national democratic revolution uh, was worked out by this group of advisors offered to the Soviet Communist Party, adopted by it as uh, a good idea, good policy, and then adopted by the these meetings of the international uh, international meetings of communist and workers' parties. And so it was advised to the party. And then in 1969, there's another such meeting, and this formulation was sort of strengthened and uh, reformulated. And in that way, it went into the uh, Morogoro conference, uh, ANC conference program. If you compare the resolution of uh, the 1969 uh, meeting of the Communist and Workers' Parties on that score and uh, the strategy and tactics of 1969, it's word after word after word, all the formulations, they, uh, they just uh, repeated it. So we, it was this very sexy idea, which was sort of gaining traction in the 1960s. The ANC had their conference, they kind of copied, <laughs> copied it word for word. But I'm thinking here we are 55 years later, uh, and the ANC is still producing policy documents and organizational reports which refer to the NDR, the National Democratic Revolution. So does this represent, it does, is this because the NDR represents a timeless idea that never goes out of fashion? Or is this just sort of being stuck in the past and still hammering on about an idea from 19... For the ANC leadership, it is not the past. 
You see, the ideal have been socialism, whether they said it or not. That's the future. That's the future. So we have to go there. The idea that negotiated settlement is peaceful settlement uh, was bad because then socialism did not happen. It is a very, very fashionable idea now in the left circles. So the idea of moving to socialism, of which they have very little knowledge and very little understanding. They don't understand what socialism is and where it can lead, but anyway, they want there. Uh, uh, why they want there? Because they, some sincerely believe that it will bring a better life for all. If you nationalize everything, then everything will be just hunky-dory. Uh, if you uh, don't nationalize and capitalism is allowed, then everybody is unhappy. Uh, so in many sincerely believe that this is the uh, way uh, to the happiness of the people. Uh, the fact that a huge and rich country uh, like the USSR failed mm. doesn't teach them any lesson at all. Or at least I think that maybe the leaders of the Communist Party understand, but they can't say it because uh, that's what they stand for. And many of the ANC cadres do not understand and do not know. Uh, so. Basically, they want more state control. Basically, they want more uh, redistribution without taking any cognizance of uh, the economic realities of this country. So that's the ideal, and this is, of course, partially the legacy of this NDR ideology, which is very deeply ingrained in the minds of the ANC very deeply ingrained. They don't have anything else. Where do you where where else do you go? That's the end of part one. You can hear the rest of the interview with Irina in episode two, The Idea of Vladimir Putin, which looks at Russia's and my favorite polar bear wrestling, Steven Seagal loving former KGB agent. What does Vladimir Putin want? And what does he want from South Africa? And will it all change now that Zuma is gone? That was episode one of The Commute. Visit us at www.thecommute.co.za or find us on the iTunes store for more episodes. We've got episodes on South Africa and China, South Africa and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We've got one on what is the point of the South African Ministry of Arts. Many more episodes. Don't hesitate to visit us. And thanks for listening.